Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that transform. And today, we will visit with Stuart Levin, who has authored a book that will help us transform conflict, uh, and it's called Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration. Following our interview today, you are invited to log into LinkedIn search groups and join the group called Bookends, the discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to today's recording as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I am your host, Susan Stam, and I'd like to introduce Stuart Levin, who refers to himself as a resolutionary. Stuart is a creative problem solver, widely recognized for creating agreement and empowerment in the most challenging circumstances. He improves productivity while saving the enormous cost of conflict. His innovative work with agreements for results and his resolutionary conversational models are unique. As a practicing lawyer, he realized that fighting was a very ineffective way of resolving problems. As a marketing executive for AT&T, he saw that the reason collaborations fell apart is that people do not spend time at the beginning of a new working relationship to create clarity about what they want to accomplish together and how they will get there. This is true for employment relationships, teams, joint ventures, and all members of any virtual team. As a result of his observations, he's designed conversational models that create agreements for results and a quick return to productivity when those working relationships break down. He uses his approach to form teams and joint ventures in a variety of situations. He works with individuals, couples, partners, small and large organizations of all kinds. His models for problem-solving, collaboration, and conflict resolution were endorsed by the House Judiciary Committee. Stewart's clients have included American Express, Chevron, EDS, General Motors, and Oracle. His cycle of resolution was recently selected for inclusion in the Change Handbook, and his book, Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration, was an executive book club selection featured by Executive Book Summaries and named one of the 30 best business books of 1998. It's the second edition of this book that that was released last year that we are featuring today. It's been translated into Russian, Hebrew, and Portuguese. The Book of Agreement, published by uh, Barrett Kohler in 2003, has been endorsed by many thought leaders and been hailed as more practical than the classic Getting to Yes book, and named one of the best books of 2003 by CEO Refresher. Collaboration 2.0, Technology and Tools for Collaboration in a Web 2.0 World, co-authored with David Coleman uh, through Happy About Books in 2008, provides guidance for effectively communicating in a virtual world. He teaches communication and conflict management skills for the American Management Association, IBI Global, and the International Partnering Institute. To get a copy of Getting to Resolution or to connect personally with Stuart, I'd encourage you to visit his website, which is www.resolutionworks.com. 
Hello, Stuart Levin, and welcome back to Bookends. Hello, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, Stuart, I, I was thinking um, about the very first time that I met you, and um, the, at that meeting, you shared a little story about how you got involved in, in the work that you do today and helping people form agreements and work through resolution. And um, I was kind of entertained by the story, and I was delighted to find it in the preface of your book. Um, to begin today, would you mind sharing the story uh, with us about your early days as an attorney? Sure. My pleasure, Susan. Um, yeah, you know, it's a story that I hadn't thought of for many years, and when I wrote the first edition to Getting to Resolution, it, it finally popped into my mind. And it's a story... Uh, about my experience as uh, the very beginning of my second year of law school. And I was working uh, for a clinical program um, in Camden, New Jersey. And I was, you know, handling cases for people that couldn't afford lawyers under the supervision of a lawyer. And on the beginning of the semester, they gave me 25 cases, and they said, here you go, Stuart. This should keep you busy for the semester. And, uh, you know, have fun with the cases, come back when you need some help, etc. And after about three weeks, I went back to the head of the program and I said, uh, may I have some more cases? <laughs> and, you know, with a very surprised look, they looked at me and said, well, what did you do with all the cases that we gave you? You know, they thought maybe I lost them or something, <laughs> meaning physically lost them. Uh, and they said, what happened? And I said, well, I, I resolved them all. I settled them all. And, and they looked at me and they said, well, how did you do that? I said, well, I, I kind of read through the files and I got a sense of what was going on and I got a sense of what might be a fair resolution for everyone. And I made some phone calls and everybody said yes to my proposal. Now, um, I didn't know that I was supposed to be a, quote, zealous advocate for one side for my <laughs> client. I thought my job was to get the situation resolved in a fair manner. You missed that detail in law school, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, then the story goes, I spent the next 10 years becoming a very, very effective litigator and problem creator, uh, and then I decided that uh, I was getting further and further away from the core of my own self and what it was that I do best, which is resolving situations, and so I, I walked away from the practice of law at that moment in time. Well, it's kind of a, a sad story, um, and I, I'm guessing that your experience as a, as a new attorney didn't match up with what the legal profession describes as a success or what they call a good settlement. Yeah, well, there's a there's a mantra that I heard of. Uh, as I was a young attorney, kind of walking around the courthouse listening to older attorneys speak. And uh, the line was that the way you know you have a good settlement, a good resolution, is when everybody is unhappy. <laughs> and I, I listened to that and I said, boy, what a terrible way to spend your whole life, you know, creating results that make everybody unhappy. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And that was kind of the beginning of a quest that lasted a number of years to do my best to figure out that better way. Um, how is it that we can um, transform and change conflict? What are the roots of conflict? Where does it come from? And what are the things that we need to do to move through it, get to the other side of it, and have people feel like they really got to the bottom 
of what it was that was going on. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've met people, and I bet you you have as well, Stuart, people who seem to, for some reason, get energy out of being in conflict. It's a little bit strange, but, you know, there are folks like this out there. And you address an important question early in the book, which is, why resolution? Can you talk about this a little? Sure. I mean, why resolution? Um, because, yes, there are, you know, a number of people whose life energy, whose life force is all about having conflict. Unless there's some conflict, some fight, some anger, they don't really quite feel alive. Um, resolution, I think, is much more of a, a natural, comfortable state for all of us. Nobody likes um, the, the energy, the dissonance of conflict. I think that we are, um, um, we're, as, as human beings, um, we have a compassionate um, nature uh, beneath many learned responses. And what I want to do is kind of help people get to that place. One of the things that motivates me is that when you really think about the cost of conflict to individuals, um, to society, uh, the cost gets very, very big very, very quickly. And it's that cost that I want to help people um, prevent, avoid, uh, and minimize. Yeah, and it absolutely is an incredibly expensive cost. And I think few organizations have really considered what it does cost them. Well, the the you know uh, one great example in a in a in a in an organizational context is that um, when people need to let someone go because there's a conflict and they can't get along with others, um, which is something that I call the relationship cost of conflict. Um, as a multiple of annual salary, it actually costs somewhere between one and a half and two times the annualized salary of a um, you know managerial quote professional level of employee to recruit, hire, onboard, train, and get fully functional somewhere between one and a half and two times annual salary. That so, doesn't factor in the sabotage that might occur, um, you, you know, loss of customers and poor quality and all of those kinds of issues that poor relationships, you know, can uh, produce. Right. You know, so the, 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 the wake is huge, you know, not to mention the direct cost of trying to help out the situation by bringing in, you know, consultants, trainers, HR folks, and, and the, the untold emotional cost um, on that individual and on all of the folks, you know, in the wake of that individual. Yeah. So it's, it's a much better um, intervention to um, resolve the conflict, but really resolve it, not just pave over it, but really resolve it and provide the resources that that individual or group might need to actually get to the bottom of whatever is, is, is in the way. Yeah. In, in, in the book, you also talk about our culture in terms of its litigious nature, and um, I think you're right on target there. In fact, you know, when when we used to use phone books, remember back when we used to use phone books? I do. <laughs> <laughs> when we would travel, we would like to open up the phone book, and we would kind of play this game to see if we could find a city that had more physicians than attorneys. And 
uh, I don't think there are many cities out there like that. Uh, it's kind of a, a sad uh, commentary for our country. Um, but um, what do you feel, Stuart? What does our intense need for professionals who solve problems for us, such as attorneys, say about us as a culture? Well, the, the thing that it says to me is that it says we're not taking responsibility. Um, you know, we've become a culture that, that always, in, when things um, go wrong, when they go south, we look for who's at fault, who can we blame in the situation. We don't turn and say, What's, what am I responsible for? What are they responsible for? And the thing that I think that we really um, miss out on in that regard, when we turn to an attorney uh, a counselor, um, uh, uh, employee assistance, um, an HR representative. When we turn to all those people as a resource, what we miss is finding out in some ways who we are. And by that I mean, you know, each individual can have a, 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 a pretty elevated self-concept. But the reality is when we're tested by difficult interpersonal interactions, um, when we're tested by those, um, if we don't jump in and try to get to the bottom of them ourselves, we miss the capacity to explore our own edges, we miss the capacity for deeper connection with other people, and in some great sense, we miss the capacity to really resolve the conflict because conflict exists as an emotional state inside of an individual. When you try to give it away to someone else to resolve, um, you lose out on growth as an individual, growth as a human being, um, growth in terms of maximizing your own potential. A pretty big idea. It's almost as if we're having someone else live a piece of our life for us that we are giving them, giving away. Uh, that's a really good way to describe it, and that's ex exactly um, what happens in those situations. Well, another characteristic of this society uh, is that we understand things when, when they're quantified. We are in love with data. Can you tell us a little bit about, you, we, we mentioned a little bit about the uh, financial implications. Do you have any you know, specific stories or uh, organizations that you know, really uh, put some numbers behind this? Um, any thoughts around uh, you know the the real real cost or savings. Um, yeah, as a, as a society, as a culture, the um, the both on the federal side and the state side, there are organizations that actually you know measure the the relative cost of litigation, and and the numbers are are absolutely uh, huge uh, in terms of what what it costs us as a society and culture. You know, if we think currently about the the current healthcare debate. I mean, one of the big debates is um, figuring out how we might um, have some kind of reform so that the litigiousness is not impacting the healthcare system. I know enough, any number of, of um, hospitals, for example, have installed programs so that doctors can come in after a mistake is made and without fear of liability actually talked about um, what happened and and that's kind of as a way to reduce costs I like to think of the cost of conflict 
from an organizational perspective as having four real prongs. Number one would be the direct cost involved, which involves the cost of professionals, both inside and outside the organization, who need to devote time to getting people through situations of conflict. The second one is, is the productivity cost, the amount of time that people are either not present in the workplace or have their capacity diminished, and a, a huge part of that is opportunity cost. Um, if the conflict happened yesterday and current management is spending lots of time working on yesterday's conflict, that leaves them unavailable to be creative for the future and engage in things that would be um, process improvement kind of things or new produ product products kinds of things. The third one is, is what I talked about earlier, the whole notion of relationship costs, what it costs when you need to um, end relationships and, and, um, and move people out of the picture. And the last one is, is the emotional cost. Um, an element of the emotional cost, which we often um, forget about, is that the greatest cause of disease um, is stress and conflict from the workplace. And so a lot of the disease processes, which has a huge uh, cost, um, are impacted by people's holding on to that stress and their inability to move through the conflict. Yeah. It's starting to sound to me like your services are a real bargain. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's one of the frames that I wanted to put on it because as I thought about this, I said, so what, you know, aside from the fact that you know, you know and I know that walking around with conflict doesn't feel good. But aside from that, to really kind of get people to buy into the idea that there's a better way, you've got to appeal to the, the pocketbook because that's the way we often analyze um, things in, 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 in this economy. Well, Stuart, um, one of the things about me is that I love models and concepts and things like that. And and to me, um, having a model takes something that's pretty complex and makes it very doable and repeatable. It's a very powerful learning tool, and I like to use them in my work. And you've created a seven-step cycle of resolution model that provides a clear process that we can use to work towards agreements. I was wondering if you'd talk to us a little bit about your model. Sure. And you okay. could maybe share an illustration as well. Um, I absolutely will. So um, the model involves, you know, seven steps, um, some of which are kind of what I'd call touch points, okay, touch points. In truth, there are really three action steps. I'm going to go through the seven steps, but there are actually three real action steps that I want to just touch on first. The first is, is, is getting facts on the table, and, and that involves telling stories. The second is dealing with the emotion of the conflict because all conflict lives as an emotional presence inside of individuals. And the third one is creating a new agreement for the future. Um, just as an aside, the best way to prevent conflict is by starting off with good agreements, and I think you mentioned that um, in, in your introduction. So that said, let me move us through this um, model. All right, and just um, if everybody listening 
could um, picture kind of a, a, a clockwise model, and I'll move us through the steps in a clockwise fashion. All right? So um, around 1.30 um, on this clock, we have what I call conflict. And, you know, bottom line about conflict is you don't have to do much. It shows up. Um, as a matter of fact, this was brought out in very, very clear relief to me uh, a number of years ago. I was doing a lot of one-day trainings, and um, this particular week I had to take two planes every night to get to my next location. I was working in places like Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Billings, Montana. Oh, my. By Thursday night I was exhausted, and as I'm waiting for a late plane out of the corner of my eye, I notice a woman start to feed her infant child, and the first thing she does is put a bib around her neck. And through my bleary eyes, um, I did a double take because I couldn't believe what the bib said. But finally, I was able to focus in on this bib, and the bib said, spit happens. Right? <laughs> and, and so I, I like to say that you know, we don't have to do a whole lot Conflict will, you know, knock at our door. There it is, all right? Uh, uh, one of the things I've learned over time is that much of it um, just comes from the structural nature of communicating with other human beings. Um, we have different operating systems. We may look alike. We may speak the same language. Uh, we may all wear Western dress. But beneath the surface, to use some technology terms, we have different operating systems. And those kind of structural imbalances kind of create conflict um, very, very simply and easily. So conflict or, or you know, spit happens. Um, at, at 3 o'clock is kind of one of the first key steps, which I call attitude of resolution, also known as resolutionary thinking. And it's a series of principles that I say help you in terms of bringing a certain mindset to the process of resolving conflict. Things like creativity, things like openness, things like stepping into a place of, of, of learning uh, in, in the dialogue that you're about to have. Things like abundance, that there is enough for me or them. Um, it's not a question of me winning and being right uh, but a place of abundance, how can we all get what we need in this situation? So those are some of the kind of the key pieces of the attitude of resolution or resolutionary thinking. Um, the next step at about 4.30, which is the first action step, um, is telling stories. And really, when I'm working with people as a facilitator, I actually use that language, and I say, so tell me your story about the situation. And what I mean by that is, how are you talking to yourself about it? What are you saying? And this gives people the opportunity to get out of them what's going on on the inside. So telling your stories is the first kind of real interactive step. The next step in the process, which is about you know 6 o'clock on this cycle of resolution, is um, listening for a preliminary vision. And by that, I mean when you listen to the stories of others and the stories of yourself, see if you can't see some fair resolution, something that would be fair to them and fair to you. Almost tracking the kind of mindset I brought to those cases 
when I was a young legal services attorney. Um, kind of what's fair to them and what's fair to me. Now, what you have to be careful about here is for simple run-of-the-mill conflicts where there's not a whole lot of tension and emotion built up, sometimes you can step right to the resolution. One of the major mistakes people make in resolving conflict is because it's uncomfortable, because they're unclear, because they don't have a good mental model, a good roadmap, they'll rush to resolve it very, very quickly, even though they haven't gotten to the bottom of their emotions about it. And, and ultimately what that means, kind of, it, it, it's like um, paving over um, a festering wound and pre pretending that it's not there. And that'll come back to bite you in the end. So the next step in the process for situations that are not real easy and real simple, uh, and this is about 7.30 on the cycle, I call it getting current and complete. And this is a way to drill down into um, the conflict, into the emotion of it. The thesis behind it is that given that conflict lives in us as an emotional presence, that, that anger stems from kind of a, an expectation of a reality that you thought was going to develop that didn't happen. Um, this results from the lack of being explicit at the front end. We thought this transaction, this collaboration was going to move in a certain direction. They had a different thinking, which in reality shows up as a loss for an individual using psychological terms. Now, in many situations, if you start to talk about transactions in the business world from a psychological perspective, people kind of um, get uncomfortable. They don't want to jump in at that level. So I've come up with a series of pretty simple questions that help people recognize the loss, process the loss, and uh, move through the loss so that they can let it go. Because as we all know, any psychologist will tell you that if you have a loss, you need to recognize it, uh, grieve it, uh, and until you do that, you can't let it go. So I ask a series of pretty simple questions, things like, um, you know, what works about the relationship, what doesn't, um, who do you need to thank for it, who do you need to forgive and for what, who do you need to apologize to and for what, um, and what would you like the future to look like. And as people start to participate in that process, they find that they're able to surface, uncover, say whatever is kind of inside of them, and that frees them up to move forward into what I call an agreement in principle, which is really about what the new era is going to be. And when I say new era, I mean, so you've lived in this situation of conflict. It's been difficult enough that you had to seek some help through it. Well, what would you rather have the future look like? Um, and then people tend to paint with a broad brush, you know, is this marriage going to continue? Is the partnership going to continue? Is uh, the team going to be able to work together effectively moving forward? And that's what I call an agreement in principle, broad brush. And then once you have an agreement in principle, I find people usually kind of breathe a, breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because... The, the difficulty with conflict is that people become insecure, afraid, 
and they don't know what the future is going to look like. So once you can paint that broad brush, people can usually breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, and then you can go into creating some detail around what the new relationship will look like. And uh, this is where we get very behavioral. This is where I use my 10-step agreement model to really create a clear picture of what it will be like. And once you have that clarity of a new agreement, you're then in a place um, up there at midnight that I call uh, resolution. You're resolved about the situation. You're back in action. The chatter inside your mind is gone. You've created a new framework in which to collaborate and work effectively. Yeah. It's obvious that your years of experience in helping you know, individual uh, people, maybe two people or, or small groups work through this have just really come together in such a clear process to take yeah, people well, right through it. Yeah, well, just to, you know, to add some practicality on it, um, I'll tell, you know, a little history and um, and a story. Um, this model was tested in the context of me doing divorce mediation. Um, and That's I don't a real have test. To, I don't have to right. I don't have to tell you. My thinking was as as I observed this model working in in that arena. Wow, if this model is working here where there's an extremely high level of interpersonal conflict and tension. If it's working here and I can get people um, to kind of figure out their new relationship going forward, I said to myself, it ought to work any place. And, oh, yeah. and that's proven true over time. And you know, one of my favorite organizational um, stories was working with a nonprofit called um, Sierra Adoption Agency. And... Sierra's job, their mission, what they did was they provided resources that would um, have, quote, unadoptable children, close quote, as deemed by the county child welfare agencies. They would provide the resources to get the kids up to speed so that they could end up in permanent adoptive homes. Now, um, they were partnering with our county child welfare agency and the partnership was in breakdown. Even though I had masters of social work on both sides of the equation, um, they couldn't work together. And for the folks in the audience, when kids are 18 and they're emancipated, set free in the world, if they're still in the foster care system, 50% of those kids are dead, um, drug addicted, um, in jail, or dead within two years. I believe it. Yep. And so I work with that group in a few sessions. We got to the bottom of what it was that was in the way of them working together, created a new functional agreement, and uh, more than 100 kids were placed in um, permanent adoptive homes in the first year following the work we did. It's a great story. Yes. Would you be willing to, to share another story with us? Uh, in your book, you, you talk about the story of Carl and Mitchell, who decided that they were going to be the meanest lawyers in their city. I <laughs> just visualizing these two guys, I just uh, 
you wouldn't believe what they looked like in my mind. Uh, can you can you share this example with us and, and the lesson that their story offers? Sure. Well, they were they were you know two guys that as a result of becoming um, you know being the, the the meanest guys in the world, you know as often happens that meanness carried over into um, their personal relationship. And one of them saw the light of day at a moment in time and realized that there's got to be a better way. And he wanted to take the the, the law practice into um, the whole notion of doing the kind of work that I do and becoming a lawyer that served people in that way. Um, And his partner initially, you know, wouldn't hear anything of it. And then... um, as history, as 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 life would have it, got into a really difficult situation that his partner was able to help him resolve, and that transformed him, and uh, they both went on to have uh, much more effective and satisfying careers as conflict resolvers. So his actual experience in the process made him a believer. Yep, mm-hmm. that's, that's great. That's, that's that's exactly it, and you know, within the legal sphere, you know, the, there there's an element of what we call transformative mediation, which actually um, is the practice that helps to transform relationships, which is is the arena, you know, and that's the universe that I function in, you know, to get people to think differently, and and for them to um, have their empathy uh, tapped into. So much of our success in being able to move towards resolution is is attitudinal. How, you know, what advice would you offer people to really develop this attitude of resolution? Yeah, the the, the biggest advice that helps people in that regard is um, personal work. Okay, work on oneself. Um, personal growth work, um, helping to get into the mindset when we combine it with the cost of conflict, um, that it's it really is um, much easier to let go of the conflict, um, to create a new agreement for the future. Um, you know, the, the way it works is if you think about um, conflict, it happened yesterday. But as long as you perpetuate it, as long as you don't let go of it, as long as you carry it into the future, as long as you stay angry, um, you are, number one, harming yourself physically by all the stress. But number two, you're paying a price every single day, the transaction cost of moving it into the future. So work on yourself um, enables you not to look to blame someone else, but to take responsibility and also lets you have higher levels of compassion for others so that you can let things go a lot easier. You know, we're all of us. um, None of us is perfect. And um, for the most part, we're trying to do the best we can in an imperfect and challenging world. I was reminded of a a, a little uh, vignette in the movie The Lion King when you were talking. I don't have you ever seen that, Stuart? I have. Mm-hmm. Where, where Mufasa, I think that's his name, the monkey, 
Yep. Goes and tracks Simba down, and he he whacks him across the side of the head. And Simba says, "Why did you do that?" He says, "What does it matter? It's in the past." <laughs> <laughs> just always love that particular scene in that film. It's just uh, it's so uh, brilliant. Yeah, you know, one one of the things that that um, is really useful in this regard um, is is the lesson from the book "Who Moved My Cheese." All right. Um, if I was creating the world and the way we function it, when um, you and I as partners in, in some project, some endeavor, some team, if things were not working between the two of us, if we were all kind of emotionally involved at some level and willing to just let it go, I could, instead of having to move through a resolution process, I could just turn to you and say, um, geez, this isn't working, Susan, is it? And you would go, no, it's not, Stuart. And I would go, well, great. What's the vision we have uh, that would make it work well? In other words, we could concentrate on what we want to have appear as opposed to what went wrong in the past. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or and, our, re- our inner relationship with each other. We're focusing on what we're trying to build, not you focusing on me and me focusing on you. And right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if more people could step into that, right, um, our relationships would be a lot simpler and the world would be a, a, a much better place. Absolutely. Such important work. And yet, you know, there we go. When something goes wrong, as was illustrated in Who Moved My Cheese, you look for someone to find fault with, someone to blame. Who else is responsible here? Yeah. And... That and the mindset of winning and losing, which is very prevalent uh, in the culture. Uh, And when we get into a situation where there's relationship breakdown, uh, very often we step over into that tack of, I'm going to be right, I'm going to win, I'm going to show them. Happens every day in workplaces all over the world, I'm I'm sure. Yes, it does. In, in the chapter that, uh, of the book that you call Getting Current and Complete, you discuss the need for everyone to participate authentically. And I think, you know, the words and the way you just shared those just a moment ago, you know, approaching the person the way that you did are, are really an example of what you're talking about in this chapter. Have you, however, encountered times where one of the parties just you know, crosses their arms, they're just simply unwilling to do this. And what do you do when you encounter a person like that? Yeah, there's a few things, okay? Um, Number one, you actually point out to them what the conflict is costing them. You know, people with that kind of an attitude um, often think that, well, they have a problem. It's not my problem, okay? And and so... um, one of the things that you need to do is get them to see that it's their problem also and that there's a cost to them. Sometimes you try to evoke some higher authority that demonstrates um, maybe their position is really untenable. When I say a higher authority, I'm not talking about um, you know, a deity of some kind. I'm talking about, um, oh, maybe a, a an organizational practice, maybe a manager, maybe a respected uh, third party. Um, sometimes um, 
they still won't engage. Uh, sometimes it's characterological, um, meaning they're just not open to have those these kinds of conversations. They're frightened by it. Um, and sometimes it's a choice that they make. Um, in those situations, sometimes the best thing um, to do is for the individual or other individuals involved to just resolve it by themselves. The word acceptance comes up here. Accept how the other is and just uh, figure out what their BATNA is, okay? B-A-T-N-A. That's an acronym. It actually comes out of the book, getting to, it comes out of the book, getting to yes. And it stands for best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And it's not a bad thing to have. In other words, um, what is the resolution in terms of your own mind when they won't engage to come to some form of negotiated resolution? Well, the, the most profound words in your book, and this is S.O., that's Susan's opinion. Okay. <laughs> Are your, uh, you know, the law of agreement itself. And I'd just like to, to share it with those that are listening. You say in the book, the source of productivity and fulfillment in any relationship is effective collaboration. And the tighter the collaboration, the better results. And you know, my opinion, this is this is what life is all about, and certainly this is what we're all striving for at work in, in those relationships as well. And yet, this law implies that, that that we can use it for so many different situations that really don't necessarily even involve conflict. Could you walk us through the remaining principles of agreement? Sure. Um, it's actually it's it's pretty simple, and just just by way of a. Um, an overview for it. I mentioned before when I was talking about the cycle of resolution that um, the last step in the process is um, a good agreement. And what I often, what I also said was that the best way to prevent conflict is by starting off all of our new relationships, new collaborations of all kinds, you know, personal and professional. The best way is to actually make sure you have a good agreement on the front end. So. Speaking of it from a principle standpoint, you know, beyond the law of agreement, uh, some of the key principles. We collaborate in language by making implicit agreements, um, meaning they're implied. We don't have a clear understanding. Um, and explicit agreements by, by, by making them fairly clear. Um, if you look at your life through what I'd call the lens of agreement, you would see that um, we work and live in a whole sea of agreements. We have agreements with uh, significant others. We have agreements with our, the organizations we work for. We have uh, 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 an unspoken agreement with the municipality and the government that we're part of, and the federal government. So w when we walk into a restaurant, there are some unspoken set of agreements we have with the people who are serving us food. Okay, so given that agreement is a is a key connector for all of us, and by the way, just as an aside, sometimes we think about organizational culture, which is a pretty fuzzy word. Well, an organizational culture is reflected in the relationships between people that are part of that organization, and if you go one step deeper, the relationship is a reflection of the spoken and unspoken Agreements. So this notion of agreement is, is really critical. 
unfortunately, and I have this happen over and over and over again, when I ask people in a, in a, in a group or program, how many of you learn the things you need to talk about at the beginning of a new collaboration? Um, very few people raise their hand, and even those that do raise their hand are, are quickly shown that they only understand one or two of the key elements. And so essentially one of the key principles is we never really learn what that conversation is to have with people that we collaborate or work with. Clear agreements express a shared vision and how to get there. They empower and contribute to the desired result because they create a context to work in. They greatly improve the chances for satisfaction in relationships, and they set up the conditions that really um, create delight with others that we're working with. Uh, the more agreements we create, the, the, the more we practice, the better we get at it. And what's also true is no matter how good the agreement, we didn't think about everything and, and some elements of conflict or dissonance will come up. Um, when those breakdowns happen, um, best to have a mindset where we don't get alarmed. It's just kind of an opportunity to create a new agreement. So those are kind of the, the key principles involved in this situation. And I can't tell you, I've, I've used this model with startup organizations inside of conflicting teams. I do my best to use it in my own life. And it really works and creates um, effective relationships. Yeah. And I think, you know, so many people are often often hesitate to really move into the relationship and work through a conflict and disagreements because it's so uncomfortable, but you've provided such you know, a simple, clear template. So I, I hope folks that are that are listening and struggle with, with this will get a copy of your book because uh, it really does walk you through this in, in such an elegant way. And I have to share with you in, in the book that my personal favorite chapter was Chapter 21. Okay. In which you talk about the seventh step of the resolution cycle, which is, of course, resolution. And you talk about how we can manifest the results that we desire. And you talk about the laws of manifestation. And I just, you know, love this kind of uh, information. It's kind of one of my pet areas <laughs> of interest. And so thank you for including it in there. Could you talk just a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, it, you know, it's a great follow-up to the notion of, 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 of clear agreements. Because, you know, manifestation um, really is nothing more than saying what we what we envision, what we think about, um, is the first step in making something show up in the world. So, um, you know, before the Wright brothers created an airplane, they had a vision. It was a thought in their mind of a vehicle that they wanted to create, okay? So um, when we have a thought of ourselves of something we want to create, or when we work with others, you know, the initial spark is some thought or vision of something that we want to create, right? And when we kind of put flesh on those bones and create a great vision of it, um, I like to think that, you know, clear agreements are, are tools for manifestation, that it, it, it creates the details around not just the vision of the completion of that vision being in reality, but the steps and a roadmap to it and who else we need to make things happen and how we will move through any difficulties along the way. 
So it really is a great tool for creating um, real things in this world. Well, to, to wrap up our time with you today, Stuart, and I hate for this time to end, uh, but I, I was wondering if we could go back to an earlier topic. Um, a little earlier we talked about people taking, uh, having resistance to taking personal responsibility. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm wondering how you see or if you see a relationship between behavior that's one-to-one you know, me not taking responsibility to have conversations with you or my part in the, in the process to our global need to collaborate more effectively? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question and, and, and kind of a, um, a very important one for the time that we live in. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll share two things. Um, number one, the final chapter of the second edition of um, Getting to Resolution is the same as the final chapter in the first edition. <clears throat> and it's a story of a, an ordinary story of, a, of, a, of a, a woman that many people will be able to identify and some of the challenges she faced in her life as a practical matter. Um, and I don't mean personal challenges. I mean interpersonal challenges, you know, with her husband, with her family, with her work. And it's the story of how she uses the cycle of resolution to move through them and how, how much satisfaction her life provides as a result of using these tools. Now, as I was getting ready to do the second edition, my initial thought was, geez, I really want to, you know, touch on some more global themes. Um, you know, how could these models be used um, you know, in nation-state disputes um, uh, around issues like climate change, such things as that. And when I thought about it a little bit more, uh, I actually said to myself, you know, the micro is much important, more important to impact than the macro, meaning, you know, when we start to learn individual skills on a personal level, we then can bring them out uh, to apply to the larger problems in the world. And the bottom line is, if you don't have more and more people engaged in what I call resolutionary thinking, if our congresses and political actors aren't engaged in resolutionary thinking, what happens is people don't have real negotiation. They don't have real diplomacy. Um, they end up in wars. And this is a, a really sad and unfortunate um, reality for the universe we lived in. Um, and the way I think about it is I think about this in terms of conquering outer space versus inner space. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, we have conquered outer space, meaning I don't mean you know space as in the moon and Mars. I mean the physical confines of the Earth. To a great degree, we as a species, as a culture, have mastered um, physical reality of Earth, you know, through technological advancements. But what we haven't conquered is inner space, meaning um, our capacity to engage effectively and collaboratively with others. And historically, we've had war, but historically, we didn't have the level 
of weapons of mass destruction of various kinds. We didn't have the global climate challenges. We didn't have the, the global population challenges. And as um, Einstein said, we're not going to solve the problems we have with our current level of thinking. We need um, new ways of thinking. So as I think about a global situation, I really do think that we need um, resolutionary thinking and a resolution mindset um, to help us get through the challenges we face as a species. If we don't, we will end up a layer in the archaeological yeah. record. All the more reason for us to really you know, learn the skills and, and learn how to do this, that our, the, the results of our individual relationships with each other have much far-reaching, much more far-reaching effect sometimes yeah. than, than we can imagine. Yep, and a great opportunity is to learn these in the, in the quote, playground of the workplace, okay? Um, you know, in the context of organizations. It's a great place. All the programs that I do currently, I encourage people to, you know, to practice in that area because I guarantee them that all of their personal relationships will be a lot better if they do that. Well, Stuart, it's always good to visit with you. And once again, I want to thank you for uh, joining us here today to share your expertise and your knowledge around an area that's quite challenging for so many of us but can enhance our lives and our relationships and really transform our teams and our organizational culture. So thank you um, again for, for being with us today. And I really would like to encourage everyone um, to purchase your book. Um, it's an excellent book. And um, to get a copy of Stuart's book, Getting to Resolution Once, once Again, um, or to connect with Stuart um, uh, personally and um, uh, consult with him uh, for um, uh, your, your needs in the resolution or collaboration area, please visit his website, which is www.resolutionworks.com. And I would like to remind you that following our interview today, that you're invited to join in the conversation uh, by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions here for Stuart. Uh, you can pose questions for other authors, and you can dialogue with uh, your colleagues and your peers. You'll also find a link uh, for today's recording, which will be posted there shortly, and uh, you can re-listen to this interview and share it with others. Invite your friends to join the group with you. And so once again, Stuart, thank you, thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure others do as well. My pleasure, Susan, and thank you so much for your uh, very thoughtful uh, interview. Thank you, Stuart. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.